You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, this is a very special episode. Do you know why? Is it because we're in the same room? Yeah, it's because we're in the same room. Let's talk about it in the sorting chat. What a good idea. <laughs> so we can't actually hug while we're recording, but we did hug. We've hugged. I have held your new baby. And also, I have played Legos with your old baby. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm going to call Elliot My now. old baby. <laughs> you know what? Keeping with our theme from the last episode of uh, just talking about brand-named products that we're really into, those Legos, like the Super Mario Lego set that you were playing with, with Elliot, so fun, right? Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. It's There's a Luigi and... <laughs> He's got like a sensor in his butt, and so he knows what color he's standing on, and he reacts to different colors as though they're different surfaces. Listen, this episode was brought to you by that <laughs> Lego Luigi I played with. This episode is brought to you by the color red and the concept of playing with your nibblings. <laughs> Score! Uh, <laughs> Hannah, since you're here visiting Edmonton, why don't you tell us uh, what else, who else you're going to snuggle while you're here. Oh my goodness. Well, I've already gotten some other high quality snuggles mm -hmm. in. I visited friend of the podcast, Claire, last night mm -hmm. and uh, got to snuggle her new kitty, mm -hmm. who is a uh, like still semi-feral recent adoptee mm -hmm. named Gabby. Gabby, Gabby the, the Tabby. tabby. I got to, uh, like, just lounge with Claire and Todd on mm. their couch. Incredible. With their cat on my lap, playing Mario. What's the one where it's a board game? Settlers of Catan. 
Yeah, Super Mario. Super Mario Settlers of Catan edition. That would actually be incredible. Yeah, that, I'm sounds, just really, that sounds really fun. Uh, no, it was some Mario video game that is a board game. Well, you need to go over there and you need to play it with them. It was really fun. They've literally never invited me over to their house. <laughs> we live in the same city. Claire told me last night that you have claimed you have never been in their backyard. And she was like, we've lived here for five years. I think she's wrong. <laughs> I'm not. I was in her backyard for the first time for her outside birthday party. Just so listeners know, Marcel now has a lap full of iPad and cat. So I've cuddled two nibblings and a new cat. And tonight I get to meet friends of the podcast, Caitlin and Steve's baby. For the first time, gonna go snuggle Arden. I'm really excited. So that's basically the theme of this trip is that I'm just going to climb every mountain and hug every baby. <laughs> but also, since I'm in town, we thought maybe let's record an episode in the same room. Yeah. I think the last episode that we recorded in the same room was the carry on episode. Oh my God, the one where we had a fight in your bed. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, this one, we're going to have the opposite of a fight. Kisses? Coach is mouthing. She's she's miming kisses. Yeah. We're going to have kisses. (laughs) We're going to have kisses. No, we're going to have a good time. Yeah. All right. Let's just do it. It's been two years since we saw each other in person, and we've got some reacquainting to do. So let's get started in revision. We can all agree the most important reacquainting that we have to do with each other is about summarizing major topics we've covered in episodes of this podcast. Listen, dude, you wrote the script. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm going to make fun of it. As is your right. Yes, thank you. So we're going to be talking today about shape-shifting. Ooh. And there are a few threads from previous episodes I would like to draw together Mm -hmm. before we take on that topic. First off, way back in book one, episode three, we introduced the idea of animal studies. And during that episode, we particularly talked about the divide between the human and the animal as an ideological divide. So... The idea there is that humans are, of course, animals. And so defining the animal as that which is not human or the human as that which is not animal, it tells us more about the ideological notion of the human than it does about animals themselves. Right. That makes sense. We also looked at how feminist, indigenous, and black theorists have pointed to the animal-human or human-animal divide as not just ideological, but oppressive and particularly entangled with white supremacy and settler colonialism and their projects of creating discourses in which some humans are more human than other humans. Oh, boy. With white men, of course, always being at the top of the hierarchy. The most human humans. Naturally. Naturally. (laughs) They made the hierarchy, so they get to put themselves at the top. They did all the hard work. (laughs) They did all the hard work of oppressing the rest of the world, so... The people aren't going to oppress themselves, Hannah. That's a great point. I know. You're welcome. And of course, don't forget, Hannah, we also took a closer look at the dangers of creatures that cross the human-animal divide in two different episodes. 
In our discussion of lycanthropy as a metaphor, we talked about how the dangerous border-crossing nature of the werewolves has historically associated them with disability and chronic illness and non-normative bodies in general. Mm-hmm. And we looked at how Rowling herself has claimed that her werewolves are metaphors for people with HIV and AIDS. Failed metaphors, of course, because of the link this draws between illness and monstrosity. And speaking of monstrosity, we looked at some more border-crossing monstrous bodies in our episode with Jess Zimmerman, including velas, half-giants, and merpeople, all of which are imagined as not quite human and thus not quite trustworthy. Mm-hmm. We've got some more not-quite-human folks in The Order of the Phoenix, particularly the increasingly central role of the centaurs, but we're actually going to talk about them in a later episode. So today I want to focus on shape-shifting and the various forms it takes through this book. And in fact, the series as a whole. What a great idea. There's a lot of shape-shifting in these books. You are right. So To help us start grappling with what shapeshifting looks like in the wizarding world, I have made us a, a, you guessed it, chart. A chart? I was just thinking the other day about how we haven't had a chart in a while. Yeah, yeah. Don't even worry about it. Hannah, this is a very nice chart. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking at it right now, and it is so nice. Thank you. It has three columns. Oh my god, it's a three-column chart. So the three columns are the creature their shape-shifting power, and the implications of their shape-shifting power. Oh, incredible. So like a preliminary attempt to interpret, which we will return to, of course. So let's start with wizards. Your average wizard in the wizarding world Mm -hmm. can shape-shift through the aid of polyjuice potion. So polyjuice potion makes you identical to another real person. Mm -hmm. You have to use their hair. And so... It can't be a made-up person. It has to be a real someone. And we have figured out it can't be used for non-human transformations. Right. Things go bad. Things go bad. When Hermione got some cat hair and her polyjuice potion, it turned her into a cat lady and she didn't decat for months. Hard to tell. Can't remember. She was in there for a while. Yeah. yeah. So the implications of that, I think, are that with sufficient skill and resourcefulness, wizards can disguise themselves as others. Mm-hmm. So it is not something that people are born with. It is something you have to, like, be good at school to do. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's polyjuice potion. (laughs) Correct. Yep. Um, (laughs) The other note I was just going to make is that we only see polyjuice potion being used for subterfuge. You're right. You are totally right about that. Which does lead you to wonder why it's, like, a well-known, widely available potion i mean it's not why it's not easy to make but like it seems pretty easy to get your hands on the recipe for it i mean listen if a second year if a 12 year old no 13 who even knows how old hermione is ever but like yeah if a 13 year old can make it hermione's very smart but like it is you know something a intelligent kid with access to like a high school chemistry lab yeah can make sometimes it's easy to get your hands on recipes for things that are bad okay i see that next you have animagi tell me about animagi animagi so we know a couple of things about them the power is that they can turn into one specific animal Mm. at will Mm -hmm. always the same animal that animal often has like identifying markings like mcgonagall's cat has spectacles Mm -hmm. and rita skeeter's 
beetle has like antennae that kind of look like her glasses. Maybe it's just glasses. Maybe it's just glasses. <laughs> but it seems that you have that not only can you control the animal you turn into, but that you can like kind of decide what that animal is going to look like. Or maybe that it looks in a, a certain way, the same way that your Patronus looks a certain way, that it's like emanating some inner quality of you. Yeah, that's a tricky one because we get like when we learn about the marauders, right? We know, we definitely get the impression that they chose the types of animals that they would become. But also Peter Pettigrew is a very like sneaky, snivelly, rat-like person. And Sirius laughs like a dog. Like when he laughs, he barks. So is that just because they've spent so much time being their animal selves? Very unclear which came first. But one thing we do know is that uh, wizards choose to become animagi. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not born with it. And that it is... <laughs> So it is Maybelline. So it is, in fact, Maybelline. Yeah. And that it is tracked by the ministry because they recognize that it is a powerful and potentially dangerous ability. That's right. But there's no stigma attached to it, it seems. Yeah, we have no evidence of that. I mean, if there was stigma around McGonagall, we would know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. And McGonagall's a registered animagi. Yes. Um, she does it in front of her students. They're not horrified. She doesn't lose her job. Unlike our next kind of shapeshifter, werewolves. Oh, talk to me about werewolves. So werewolves also turn into an animal, but they don't have control over it. They are forcibly turned into a creature by the full moon. Mm -hmm. And when they undergo that transformation, they lose control. It becomes violent, dangerous, and potentially infectious. Mm -hmm. So they are definitely like there is a lot of stigma associated with being a werewolf. I mean, not only do you not have control over transforming into a werewolf, you also don't have control over being infected by werewolfism, yeah. lycanthropy. So, yeah. Yeah, so like you choose to become an animag just... Mm. We'll never know. But you don't choose to become a werewolf. It is done to you. Correct. Yeah. We've got two more that I want to talk about before we get to the one I really want to focus in. So briefly, we've got a few supernatural creatures that we encounter that are able to shapeshift. Okay. So we've got the Velas. Oh, okay. Yeah. So when they are angry, they transform maybe involuntarily. They don't seem to be associated with self-control. <laughs> so they maybe involuntarily transform into monstrous harpy-like creatures. I mean, ladies, am I right? You. You are right. <laughs> and so, you know, the implications of the Velas is like, don't trust hot women. Harpies underneath. They're just trying to trap you. Exactly. And then the other one is Bogarts, oh. which are like, by definition, exist only as a transformed shape, right? That's true. We do not know what the true nature of the Bogart is because we only ever see it shifting shape. Yeah, because you can only see a bogart by seeing a bogart and a bogart turns into the fear of the person looking at it it's a real ontological head scratcher Ooh. but it's like they're not really bad guys like people aren't like oh no a bogart like they're pretty easy to get rid of yeah they're more there to like drive narrative in terms of revealing characters fears and giving them a chance to grapple with them that brings me to 
the final kind that I want to talk about and that I actually particularly want to focus on in this episode. And that is Metamorph Magi, which is one, one of the worst portmanteaus in this book series. It's not very good. It reminds me a lot of science fiction. Yeah, science fiction. Same vibe. But two, we only encounter one. It's Tonks. Mm -hmm. And all of the rules seem really different with Metamorph Magi. So it's an innate power. You're born with it. You are born with it. It is not Maybelline. (laughs) And it allows you to transform your physical appearance only into other humans. I did double check this because in the movie, Mm -hmm. you see Tonks give herself like an elephant trunk. But in the books, she can only give herself human parts. She gives herself a pig nose. Is that also only in the movie? I can't remember. Yeah, she gives herself a pig-like nose in the book. And Harry mentions that he feels like Dudley's looking at him. Ugh. Right? So it's like a snub nose. So she can make small cosmetic changes. She changes her hair color a bunch. She changes her nose to, like, amuse people. But hypothetically, she could make herself look like any person, real or imagined. Mm -hmm. And the implications of being a metamorph magus are pretty unclear. But given that Tongs is an auror, there doesn't seem to be much stigma affiliated with it. Right. And she doesn't hide that ability. She uses it like party tricks. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, Marcel. Yes. Tell me. Do you see any interesting patterns or themes in these different types of shapeshifters? <gasps> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay. I would say that... Is this a trick question? Is No. <laughs> Absolutely not. I feel like I've started to notice some themes as I think about it. I think that there's a recurring interest in control versus lack of control. Mm-hmm. That, like... Any transformation that happens against your will makes you dangerous and suspect, Mm -hmm. monstrous in some way. Whereas transformations that you can control are generally associated with power, but that that power itself seems to be maybe morally neutral. That like it can be used for good or for evil, but the ability to actually just like change how you look, like... Yeah. We never encounter anyone who is slipped polyjuice potion unbeknownst to them, right? Good question. I don't think we do. I don't think so either. People only take it on purpose mm-hmm. with a deliberate sense of who they will transform into. Mm-hmm. But ostensibly, you could slip it to someone. You could, yeah. Okay, and one other thing, I guess this is more of a question that I have. This is less an observation. I guess it is an observation of some knowledge that I lack. Truly, a question is just an observation of a thing you don't know. (laughs) So one of the things that I'm wondering about is, I wonder if it takes energy to transform into any of these things. If I wanted to adjust my voice, I would have to intentionally do that. It would take practice for me to do it in a long and sustained fashion. Or similarly, if I wanted to adjust my face just using the muscles on my face, I would also have to... Now I'm very hyper aware of what my face is doing, but like... We know that it is effortful for Tonks because every time Harry sees her do it, she's straining. Mm -hmm. She's like... 
hair. <laughs> that sound is going to be great on Mike. Yeah. But then does she have to, like, so she strains to change it. Mm-hmm. But then does she continue to strain to maintain it? Very good question. Mm. Which also leads to the question of with somebody who can transform themselves like that, is there one default appearance Mm. that is quote unquote naturally hers? Mm -hmm. Or is it just the appearance that she happens to have chosen for the moment? Wow, that's wild. Does a shapeshifter actually look like anything inherently? Okay, so similar to... The Bogart, does the Metamorphma just have a default setting, a factory setting, if you will? (laughs) I mean, that gets us into really interesting questions about identity and appearance and performativity and essence. And I think we should talk about some of those ideas. Oh, my God. Is there a default setting for gender, Hannah? Well, we're literally going to talk about that in the next segment. Let's go. Okay. All right. Well, much like we have magically transformed ourselves into people who are in the same room, (laughs) it's time to magically transform your questions into answers in transfiguration class. All right, Hannah, talk me through it. What you got? Okay. So what I'm really interested in exploring today is the problem of shapeshifting as a conceptual problem. Mm -hmm. related to things like deception and transparency and hypocrisy and the general expectation we have that the way things appear ought to correlate in a stable and predictable way to what they are. Whoa, there's a lot. So we're starting from the premise that we as a people ideologically expect things to look the way that we expect them to look? Yes. We are constantly looking at things and arriving at assumptions based on their appearance. We are, in the West, a highly scopophilic culture, (laughs) which is a great word that comes from feminist film theory. Okay. Scopophilic is like obsessed with looking at things. We love to talk about and think about what people look like. Okay. We love to talk about and think about what things look like. And we love to arrive at hasty and unthinking assumptions about people based on their appearance. That is a thing. I don't know if I love to do it. (laughs) Yeah, 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 fair. (laughs) But you do. But I do it. Mm -hmm. And the way that you arrive at those assumptions is deeply ideologically underpinned, right? That you have been, we have been, we have all been trained how to read physical appearances of people, but also of lots of other things. And that training happens unthinkingly and constantly right from the get-go through narrative and film and social coding and what we observe from other people. And, you know, we care about what things look like, Mm -hmm. but we also think that what things look like tells us something about what they are. Oh, okay. This is going to be one of those episodes where I do a lot of learning. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to be talking about a lot of concepts today. And you're going to really get like Hannah at her most dilettante-ish. So everybody out there who is an expert in one or more of the things I'm about to talk about, please feel free to 
send me 17 paragraph DMs on Twitter. (laughs) I love our listeners. So I am going to start by taking us back approximately 2,400 years to 4th century BC Athens. I just got the bends. (laughs) Because I want to talk about ancient Greek theater. Okay. And the concept of the hypocrite. So hypocrisy. Okay. Comes from the Greek hypocrisis and hypocrites. I don't know if I'm saying those right. Anyway. The terms refer both to the literal act of performing a role on the stage and to the general idea of playing a role, including engaging in rhetoric and outright deception. Like lies? Yes. Whoa. So, as early as 4th century BC Athens, those ideas were being tied together. That being an actor made you untrustworthy as a political figure. (laughs) I know I shouldn't. I know that this isn't the punchline. I know that there's so much more to come. <laughs> I am literally lolling at the idea of a trustworthy politician. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's like so much of the political thought of Athens was really tied up in the question of how we knew people were trustworthy and what it meant to be, particularly to be a good leader. And this is part of why Plato in the Republic says that, like, the philosopher king has to be a person who's not actively seeking out political office, because anyone who is actively seeking out political office can't be trusted. This is why people read Plato. This is why people read Plato. Okay. Plato is also suspicious of art, by the way, because anything that is a layer of representation away from reality becomes more suspect. Suspect. Like, the further you get from the real thing, the more suspicious it is. So Plato obviously never read Althusser. I, you know what? There's not a lot of things I'm willing to say for sure. (laughs) But I'm willing to say for sure that Plato did not read Althusser. That's a really funny joke for listeners who don't know because Althusser comes about like 4,000 years later. What year What year was Plato writing? I mean, I think Plato was was like a few centuries BC. So 2,000 years later. Anyway, this Some is funny. 1,000 years later. This is funny. It's very funny. It's a history joke. It's a fact-based joke. Fact-based joke. <laughs> so Socrates was also Socrates' teacher of Plato. Also famously suspicious of rhetoricians. Socrates had this whole idea that being really good with words made it possible to disguise your real intentions. And he was like hella into truth. Mm. Like Socrates literally died rather than even being willing to like lie to some people about his intentions. Never been that committed to anything. They were like, please just pretend that you're going to stop critiquing the government. And he was like, nope, time to take some poison. Wow. So really, that begins a long history of associating the belligerent refusal to shift your stance (laughs) on things with moral virtue. Wow. (laughs) Well, that is an unfortunate trend. Mm -hmm. But it's a trend I think we can still see today. Oh, yeah, we can. (laughs) Yeah, that suspicion of actors continued, by the way, like up to, I don't know, now. With actors continuing to be, like, morally suspect in multiple cultures throughout history because of their tendency to disguise their true identities. Yeah. So being able to disguise the true self also had other implications, including the idea that there's a true self. Oh, shit. Yeah. And that said true self 
should be mirrored both in one's appearance and one's behaviors. Okay, okay, okay. The idea that we associate that with is authenticity. Etymologically connected to the idea of authority Mm -hmm. and authorship. Yeah, absolutely. So authenticity requires self-knowledge, which gets us into the next category I want to talk about. Okay. Which is the idea of appearance versus identity. All right. Come on this wild ride with me. Okay. This is what it's like inside my brain all the time. It's real fun. So scholar Llewellyn (laughs) Negrin in an article on appearance and identity argues that the postmodern obsession with physical appearance has to do with the proliferation of regimes and technologies for altering the body. There's Okay, I'll let you continue, but I have so many questions about this already. Yeah, I'm going to read you this quote and then ask some questions about it because I think this quote deserves some pressure being applied to it. So they say, and I quote, In our modern consumer culture, a new conception of the self has emerged, namely the self as performer, which places great emphasis upon appearance, display, and the management of impressions. This replaces the 19th century concern with character, in which primacy was given to such qualities as citizenship, democracy, duty, work, honor, reputation, and morals. Whereas previously, greater emphasis was placed on other sources of identity formation than that of personal appearance, increasingly the self is defined primarily in aesthetic terms, that is, in terms of how one looks, rather than in terms of what one does. Oh, wow. Okay, we're on a ride. There are definitely some things from this quotation that really speak to my understanding of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, like, yes, I do know that this concept of character was once like a a, a thing that people talked about, not ironically. (laughs) It was defined by and used to define certain types of people. And... Yeah, okay, totally. There is a lot of assumptions and emphasis placed on the appearance of people and what we look like and what we are expected to look like in certain contexts. But if in the 19th century people didn't like people who were hot and terrible, explain Lord Byron to me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, right, right. okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he's, because Negrin is suggesting that these two things, like one replaces the other. Kind of, or that one outweighs the other now. Okay, yeah. I'm skeptical of that because while we might not use the term character to refer to someone's, I don't know, morality or virtues, we certainly still assign a lot of authority and credibility to people of a certain type. And that's just, we're just coming up with different words for character now. We use words like responsible, respectable. Respectability. Mm -hmm. We also are obsessed today with both authenticity and relatability is like a huge thing. And think about how many influencers... Like, their brand is not only looking a certain way and producing an impression of their life that is a certain way, but also performing a kind of relatability. Like, I'm just like you. And relatability has as sort of an expectation consistency, right? Right. That you've got to have a sort of internally consistent self that can be flawed, right? You're not trying to set yourself up as like a moral paragon, But you are still expected to be, like, a good person Mm -hmm. if you want to have 
a following. I don't even know if people are expected to be good so mm. much as consistent. If you think about, like, the Jenners and the Kardashians, like, yeah. I'm not sure that people follow them. I'm not sure people keep up with them. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> because they are good, but they are consistent. You know what to expect, which is sometimes the unexpected, but not like... I'm going to give up all of my possessions and become a nun unexpected. There are still, like, we see a lot of conversations happening right now about, like, canceling people because of their bad behavior. Yeah, okay. So there is still kind of a moralism getting attached to, particularly to the way that celebrities behave. And an ongoing disdain for hypocrisy, which suggests, again, that even in a culture that is obsessed with what people look like, there is still an expectation somehow that their appearance has to match their insides. Ooh, okay. So I don't think it's quite that clear cut, this difference between we used to care about character and now we care about appearance. Mm -hmm. But I'm particularly interested in this we used to care about character idea being sort of implicitly presented as like, that was better? Oh, Than caring yeah. about appearance? I am always suspicious of any attempt to be like, things used to be better in a moralistic way. So I don't want to necessarily assign that like motivation to Negrin, but I think that it can be tempting to say like, oh, we care about appearance now. We used to care about substance. So let's add a little history to that idea of caring about substance. Ooh. Yeah, you guessed it. It's time to talk about Calvinism. I did guess. No, I didn't. <laughs> Listeners, I could never you have could guessed never that we were going to go into Calvinism. Have guessed it. So let's talk about predestination. Let's talk about the theological concept of predestination. Hit me up. So predestination was a Protestant idea. Calvinist specifically, as in Calvin was the guy who like advocated for it. So Calvin was a Protestant and he was like, here's a particular idea that I have. Y'all are going to love it. Yeah. And what he thought they were going to love is the idea that God already knows if you are saved or damned. You can't convince God to do anything. Because he sees you when you're <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Uh, you better watch out because you can't buy your way into heaven. And that is very specifically a critique of the Catholic system of indulgences. Yes. Okay. I do remember this where you pay money to the church to have some sins forgiven. Yeah. And you could do that on behalf of people who had already passed. Yeah. So, like, your dad was a real bad guy, and now he's dead, but you don't want him to spend too much time in purgatory, so you would give the Catholic Church some money, and they would just, like, bump him up on the list for the goodness transplant. Yes. And it was, like, big business. <laughs> like... They were getting a lot of money. And so it very we can see how that very quickly becomes like rich people get into heaven faster than poor people. Yeah. Which is like, well, that seems wrong. <laughs> I've read the Bible. That doesn't seem to be what they were into. <laughs> it does explain why the Catholic Church has so much money right so now. So much money. Fun fact about 
indulgences. That was actually the first thing that Gutenberg printed in his print workshop in Mainz with movable type. That is a fun fact. Yeah, before he started the Bible project, he was printing indulgences. So we have indulgences to thank for print, is what you're saying. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, (laughs) indulgences. So predestination was basically like a theological attempt to like push back against this idea that you could like sucker God into letting you into heaven faster by giving him some money. Not even giving him money, but giving the church church money, money. his representation on earth. Yeah. (laughs) So God doesn't need your money. God does not need your money. So the idea was that God is all knowing and that God's omniscience also spans time. So it's not like God thinks you're damned now, but will be surprised later on to find out that actually you're a pretty good guy. God just knows. But that means that nothing you can do will change it. So there's no point. So rather than fixating on good works Mm -hmm. to try to like earn your way into heaven, Mm -hmm. Calvinists started to get really fixated on the idea of internally directed self-scrutiny to figure out if you were saved or not. Okay. So Calvinism is often linked to the rise of practices like journaling and like autobiography in general. You kind of would like obsessively review your own intentions and motivations to figure out if you were saved or damned. Like you wanted to be somebody who did good works, but the point wasn't that the works themselves mattered. The point was the motivation. You wanted to be somebody who wanted to do good works. You wanted to not only be a hardworking person, but you wanted to be somebody who loved working hard. I hate working hard. Which is where we get the Protestant work ethic. Oh, of course. Right? So this is Max Weber's concept of the idea that Calvinism and its obsession with, like, self-scrutinizing and wanting to have, like, the right kinds of intentions mm-hmm. tied in really well to capitalism. Yes. Which was, like, it is a virtue to work hard. And if only you worked hard, you would be better off in the world. Mm -hmm. So this whole idea of like moralizing things like work, like self-restraint, self-control, self-management, those are all deeply Calvinist ideas. So it's like being lazy is not only bad for capitalism, it is morally bad because it says that you are not saved. Because if you were saved, you would just love working. And we absolutely see this when we think about, like, we see this literally today, like today on the radio when people talk about how they can't get employees because the government's pandemic relief fund Mm -hmm. gives them too much money to just stay home and do nothing. There's like a moralistic disparagement that continues to this very second for anybody who would rather not work than work. And it's really important that that work is um, voluntary Mm -hmm. because we don't have as positive a moral association with people who, like, have to work three jobs to pay the rent as opposed to people who, like, would be fine working less but choose to work more because they love it. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody looks at people who work three jobs in order to pay the rent and support their family and think, wow, those those are the saved people. I mean, I think that that's sort of implicit in a lot of things, but that's not actually how it works. It's t- I mean, the American dream is tied up in the 
Protestant work ethic. Totally. So the argument that Negrin is making that the side of self-scrutiny has begun to switch from the internal to the external. So we're like really fixated on controlling how we look rather than like what we're like inside. Like I think it's a bit of an oversimplification, but I do think sort of the cause and effect has shifted. So we're still really obsessed with the like moral value of self-control and self-restraint. It's just that we increasingly think that that's a thing that we can tell by looking at people. Okay, let's take glitter, for example. If you are a person who enjoys glitter, as I certainly do, Mm -hmm. glitter is not evidence of my moral goodness. Glitter is frivolous and makes me look silly and not serious. So things that teen girls like Mm. are... Silly and frivolous. Of course. Things that queers like are silly and frivolous. Um, Cultures associated with black women are silly and frivolous. Of course. Right? Mm -hmm. Things that white men like and to a slightly lesser but still significant degree adult middle class white women Mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. Those are serious things. I see. I see. I see. And those things often indicate inner virtue which we see in things like what I call the Joe Rogan School of Public Intellectualism. Tell me more about this. I think that a big reason why people think that Joe Rogan is allowed to be a moral authority on various topics is because he's good at CrossFit. For our listeners and also possibly me, who is Joe Rogan? Joe Rogan is an extremely popular podcaster. He's a very, like, centrist white male who likes to, like, just have like a really wide variety of opinions on and just be like, oh, I'm just learning. I'm not backing any of these things. I'm just asking questions. But his authority, I think, is very closely tied to the fact that he is a very physically fit person. I think that in contemporary Western culture, your moral authority is inversely related to your percentage of body fat because we are obsessed yeah. with qualities like self-management, self-control, and self-restraint. Yeah. We still believe that those are morally good qualities, and we think that they are perceptible from the outside. So we're still obsessed with character. Mm-hmm. We just think that character is legible through bodily management. Wow, this checks out. I follow you. Sorry, wait. When I say this checks out. (laughs) You're like, yes, I also believe this. (laughs) It sounds true to me. This makes a lot of sense. I hear what you're saying. The last topic I want to touch on Mm -hmm. is performativity. So what we've talked about so far is this like anxiety about a division between internal self and external self and an expectation that morality is legible legible by you as you like confront yourself but also ultimately legible from the outside because if you are managing yourself properly you will appear as managed to other people so this suggests all kinds of things including that we are legible and that our outsides have some sort of intrinsic relationship to our insides Mm -hmm. and that we have a stable thing called an identity <laughs> Which brings us to performativity. Okay, so tell me what Judy B has to say. Oh, Judy B. Um, performativity. For those of you unfamiliar, this is a concept associated most strongly with Judith Butler's book, Gender Trouble. And it's part of queer theory's radical reshaping of how we think about the relationship between appearance and identity, body and self, performance and reality. 
So Butler is pushing back against the idea that there is a stable and knowable thing called sex and that gender maps against it perfectly and naturally. So performativity refuses the idea that there is a stable gender with a stable relationship to sex, instead arguing that, and this is from a 2011, like, clarification on performativity that they wrote, (laughs) that, quote, nobody really is a gender from the start, end quote. So Butler also differentiates between performance, which is something an individual can do with an intention, right? Like putting on a show and performativity, which is an ongoing and collective process without an individual behind it. So the individual might create a performance, but performativity creates the individual. Whoa. Okay. So what's important there is that we distinguish between saying that gender is performative is not the same thing as saying, I woke up this morning and made the decision to do my gender in a particular way. Oh. And that's not, I mean, that's fine. Like, I also perform my gender. Yeah. And that's fun and empowering and a thing I enjoy doing, like fucking with my own gender. Yeah. And like thinking about my gender and like expressing it or questioning it or playing with it through fashion and dress. But gender's performativity is there to remind us that identities are collectively created through a series of repeated gestures. Okay, tell me if I'm understanding you right. So the idea of performativity is that you can't choose to opt out of performing your gender. Like, you can choose how you want to perform your gender, but you can't choose to not perform any gender. Not quite. The whole idea that you've got a gender and that you are performing it in a way that either aligns with or subverts it Mm -hmm. comes from the performative process of gendering that begins the moment you are born. Okay. Right? So the performances include the doctor saying, it's a boy or it's a girl. And then the way everybody reacts to you, the way everybody, like it's all of the the subtle, constant actions and speech acts that we engage with that codifies and reinforces gender as though it were a stable thing. Okay. I think I didn't ask my clarification question properly because I think what I'm what I'm trying to understand is like performativity is the fact that these things are ideological and exist outside of any individual's decision. Yes. Like you can't stop being in the play. You can't stop being in the play. But what you can do is recognize that it's a play mm-hmm. and fuck with it. Yes. Which is okay. why drag is so interesting. Because drag is an embrace of the performativity of gender that recognizes it as, God, I think it's Guy Branham once wrote on Twitter that drag basically turns gender into a fart joke, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> so does Coach. Look at, look at, yeah. Coach loves Guy Branham. <laughs> yeah, Guy Branham's great. No, wait, I'm thinking of Bo Burnham. Never mind. <laughs> Tosh does love Bo Burnham. Yeah, I think I was confusing. I was confusing <laughs> Guy Branham with Bo Burnham. Some bad faith readers have suggested that Butler's work supports the reality of biology. Oh, no. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it does no such thing. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> 
Rather, what they are saying is essentially that the fetishization of biological sex as real and stable and binary is itself an ideological construction. And like any biologist will confirm that, that like there's absolutely not two biological sexes that is made up that is not how sex works in humans or any other species. Just not true. We might note how adamantly TERFs and other anti-trans rights advocates Mm -hmm. insist on their ability to visually recognize people's biological sex just by looking at them. And at the root of that insistence, which is constant and incorrect, is the ongoing fantasy that there is some sort of stable, fixed identity that is knowable and that any attempt to disguise yourself as something that you aren't is always a sign of moral suspicion or outright criminality. And this brings us full circle to what does the metamorph mud just truly look like. Exactly. So let's talk about it. Oh my gosh. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. All of this sounds like a real hoot, so let's talk about it more in Owls. I really want to talk about Tonks, but just briefly before we get into Tonks, I want to note that this book shares the general sort of like Western suspicion of hypocrisy. Oh, yeah. And we really see that in terms of how morally suspicious anyone who cares about appearance over substances. Mm, Okay. Right? The Dursleys. Obsessed. Obsessed with appearance. Fudge. Oh, of course, yeah. He doesn't actually care if Voldemort is back. He just cares how bad it would look. Right. And of course, Umbridge. Oh, because of her fluffy pink sweaters, the plates with the kittens. Yeah, performing a very sort of fluffy, soft femininity that doesn't match her insides, right? And we talked about this already as being a transphobic trope, Mm -hmm. but I think we can also see how that transphobic trope is tied to also this bigger history because, like, trans people have existed as long as to 4th century BC Athens and beyond, mm-hmm. right? And and so has this idea of, like, no, you need to be what you look like. And if you aren't what you look like, then you're lying to me. Mm-hmm. And people who aren't attached to appearance are, like, better? Better As long as their not attachment to appearance still, like, hits a certain level of care, right? Because if you are slovenly in appearance because you just don't care at all, like, there's a, there's like an expected amount of care. Absolutely, right? So you can't care too much because it's a sign of vanity and a lack of internal substance, But you can't care too little because it is a sign of 
lack of self-restraint and self-management, right? So Dudley is bad because he lacks Mm self-restraint. And his fatness is a external reflection of the fact that he can't self-manage appropriately. And in this book where he has transformed fatness into muscle, Mm -hmm. it's still a lack of self-restraint because he's still He's he's now beating up children, and so he's shifted from, like, the type of lack of self-management has shifted from, like, he no longer, he doesn't control what he puts in his body, but now he doesn't control who he inflicts with his body. Yes, yes, absolutely. And we've seen lots of other examples of people whose, like, lack of self-restraint is bad, um, but, like... You know, most of our queer-coded villains are also associated with lack of self-restraint, lack of sort of moral Mm -hmm. self-management. And then we've got, you know, our sort of classic hypocrites, right, who are like very self-restrained, but in a way that isn't evidence of internal quality, but is rather a mask for internal lack of quality, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, if you look non-restrained that means you're bad Mm -hmm. but if you look restrained but secretly aren't that also means you're bad oh who is that like the dursleys oh i see right like petunia dursley and her like absolutely immaculate home right Right? because like the weasley's home is like a little bit chaotic a little bit out of control but it's charming and part of why it's charming is because it is well and responsibly managed. Right, right. Okay, because because when they get there, when the order gets there to pick up Harry, Tonks is talking about how like, ugh, muggles, too clean. And then they get into Harry's room and she's like, oh, this is better. Yes, she says it's a bit more natural. Mm. Because his room, she immediately reads as being an authentic representation of what Harry's actually like. Whereas the rest of the Dursley's house feels like a performance to her. Because Harry has nothing to hide. Harry has nothing to hide. Whereas the Dursleys have so much to hide because they have Harry. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So that is our first encounter with Tonks. Mm -hmm. We find out first that she doesn't like being called Nymphadora, right? She likes Tonks. Nymphadora is too fancy for her. She doesn't like the clean house. We find out that she is bad at... Like household maintenance spells? Yes, because she can't pack the suitcase well, but her mother can. She can't pack it tidily. She can pack it, but it won't be tidy. It's so hard to even talk about these things without slipping into these like moralistic terms because they're so embedded in how we uh, how we live in the world. Mm-hmm. So Tonks is this person who is into authenticity into informality, who is very quickly established as good. She's an Auror. She's a young Auror. She's on the side of the good guy. She's a member of the Order of the Phoenix. Mm-hmm. But she is untidy and badly self-managed. So she, like, misses, she trips over things all the time, right? She sets off the screaming portrait in 
grandma in place because she can't stop tripping over the umbrella stand. Uh, Mrs. Weasley doesn't want her to help with the cooking because she's so clumsy. She'll probably, like, murder someone with a knife. Yep. And yet, Mm -hmm. she is the only metamorph magus we encounter in the books. And the characteristic of being a metamorph magus is that she can physically transform her appearance at will. And Mrs. Weasley is actively trying to set her up with Bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mrs. Weasley likes her. Mrs. Weasley doesn't want her to help with dinner, but she does want her to help her with grandkids. Mm-hmm. So Mrs. Weasley, a woman who we have figured out, values substance over appearance, because this is one of the characteristics of the Weasleys. She does not trust Fleur. Nope. Right? She's going to be really awful to Fleur later on. She likes Tonks. I think that Tonks represents substance over appearance. That she is somebody whose character is so consistent and so positive that her ability to physically transform herself emphasizes that consistency rather than undermining it. Okay. So would you say that she is sort of like the exception that proves the rule? I'm kind of wondering if that's how we can think about her, right? That like we've seen lots of ways in which shape-shifting is suspect. And here we've got the one person we meet who is just a shapeshifter. Like that's just what she does. She can change her appearance and she does it constantly and for fun. Mm-hmm. She changes her hair color all the time. She gives herself goofy no- noses. She's not vain. Correct. And she's not particularly attached to looking any one way. She just kind of plays with it. And she uses these powers for work also. So they're they are useful in her line of work. So maybe maybe this has to do with like usefulness. It's an ability or a power upon which she can capitalize for the greater good. And we really know her almost exclusively as an Auror, like, and a member of the Order. In this book, we don't get anything out of Tonks that isn't her sort of work on behalf of the right side of the political divide. In the next book, we'll see some feelings, which are <laughs> icky. But we'll talk about that when we get to the... Yeah, we'll talk about feelings in the next book. (laughs) But what interests me so much is that as a character, she has such, like, latently subversive queer possibilities. Oh, yeah. Right? Because, like, the second you say she is somebody who can transform her nose into any shape, you're like... Cool, she can transform any body part into any shape. Well, historically in literature, the nose is just a metaphor for a penis. So if she can transform her nose, she can transform her penis. You know, we know that Tonks uses she, her pronouns. We know that she has a very strong opinion about what name is used for her. And we know that she likes to play with her physical form, that that's a form of pleasure for her. All of that is gay as fuck. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, like, what I'm trying to sort of work through in my head is the relationship between this character who is, like, so queer and so destabilizing of biological essentialism, of the idea that there is, like, a true, singular, stable self, of 
this notion that like when you look at somebody, you should be able to figure out what their moral character is. Mm -hmm. And the way that she is at the same time being constructed in the text as someone who is like trustworthy, reliable, reliable, of good character. Mm-hmm. Tonks is one of those incredible examples of how authorial intention or like the politics of the author do not control what happens in the text. Like you can you can try, but the text is alive. The text is alive, and I think the livingness of this question in many ways comes back to that very question you asked which is, what does a Bogart actually look like, right? What does Tonks, quote-unquote, actually look like, right? In the same way that people will be like, well, what is that person's actual, like, what sex were they assigned at birth? Yeah, because what they looked like as a squirming infant covered in many different fluids is what will tell me what they actually look like and are now. Right? Like, even... People who think of themselves as being very trans-inclusive still will often be really fixated on assigned sex at birth. People will use language like female-bodied people Mm. as a way to try to get at like talking about like people with uteruses or people with vaginas. So there is still this desire to be like, no, 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 you can change yourself however you want. But you still were something once (laughs) that was a stable thing. Indeed, I was something once. I was something once. I could have been something. And that's still, like, there's still this longing to get back to essence. To say, like, well, the Boggart's got to look like something. Even if we can never see it, it's got to have a real self. And, like, Tonks has got to be, like, sure, she can change things. But, like, surely there's an appearance she has that is her real appearance. And yet, why? why? What what evidence like what evidence is there of that? Show me a scrap of textual evidence <laughs> that asserts that there is a stable default physical appearance for metamorph magi. I cannot and I will not. <laughs> so at the very beginning in revisions, I was asking questions about effort so we know that Tonks needs to strain in order to to make a change, but we don't have any textual evidence to tell us whether or not maintaining her appearance takes any effort. And it occurred to me while we were chatting about, you know, essence and what one looks like, mm-hmm. whether your gender aligns with the sex you were assigned at birth or not, there is always effort Mm. in putting yourself together to face the world. Mm -hmm. Even if that effort is like more focused on things like removing hair or unifying the color of your face or detangling hair or whatever, there's always effort. And so, yeah, like this idea that some people put more effort in than others and that is good or bad is like a really flawed and wonky, I can't think of a better word. It's a wonky way to look at bodies. And it's ideological, right? I think about this with my own gender all the time, right? I am a cis woman. And insofar as I put effort into the transformation of my body, 
that effort is generally about aligning my body with the expectations of femininity. I have taken female hormones in my life, as I think a lot of cis women have, right? I've taken birth control. I've taken like progesterone treatments to like induce menstruation. Hormonal treatments are used to aid with fertility or to manage skin conditions or to reduce body hair growth. I remove body hair. I remove facial hair, right? I am working constantly I mean, not that constantly these days, honestly, but like have spent much of my life working very hard to align myself Mm -hmm. with the ideological expectations of what being a woman in a woman's body is like. Mm -hmm. And that has included a lot of quote unquote artificial interventions. It would be every bit as easy for me to grow a mustache and take some testosterone to make that mustache slightly more luxurious. But that would be perceived as a very different performance and interaction with my gender. That's right. Because you would be resisting the social expectations of what your gender, big scare quotes, should look like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So physical appearance is often effortful. And I think, again, we see that particularly around the idea of bodily management in terms of particularly our like hyper fixation on fitness and thinness Mm -hmm. and health and wellness in our culture, right? That we treat bodies as a project that you have to be constantly managing and that if you are not managing it properly, Mm -hmm. you are a burden on society, you're a burden on the healthcare system, burden on your family, burden on your loved ones, all of this, right? And so effort is inherently aligned with what it is to be a quote unquote good person, that you have to be working at it. And yet, because of the anxiety about people performing or deceiving, there is also a suspicion around effortful appearance. So it's the question is, is the effort you working to get yourself closer to what you should be, or is your effort working to disguise your true nature? So the moral valence of effort one way or the other depends largely on The idea that there's a real stable self, Mm -hmm. that you are either working towards or working away from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when that brings us back to that, like, that question of tonks and the fact that we know that changing her appearance is effortful, which might suggest it's unnatural, but the effortfulness only aligns with unnaturalness if we assume that working to change your appearance always takes you away from your true self rather than towards the person you want to be. And I wonder if the fact that Tonks can do these changes naturally, physiologically from birth. I wonder if this idea of it being an innate ability of hers makes it less suspicious than if she were constantly dyeing her hair. Like, I wonder if the text would present it quite as enjoyable and pleasurable and Mm -hmm. admirable or, or, or cute and whimsical, but in an acceptable way. 
if she showed up and they were like, oh, Tonks, your hair is pink today. And she was like, yeah, I bought a jar of Manic Panic on the way here. And she looks in the mirror and she's like, I don't know if pink's really my color. And then buys a jar of Manic Panic on her way home to dye it purple. Mm -hmm. Similarly, it would probably be less whimsical if she was getting like a nose job every week. Yeah. To like fuck around and make her nose different. But, right, the idea of permanently transforming your body... People get freaked out about tattoos. They get freaked out about surgeries. They get freaked out about piercings, not because the piercing is permanent, but because the scar that it would leave behind is permanent. And much more freaked out about like gauges than standard piercings, right? The more permanent a bodily transformation is, the more worrying that transformation is Unless Unless that bodily transformation is associated with moral value, like weight loss surgeries, (gasps) which are unbelievably dangerous Mm -hmm. and still constantly advocated for by doctors. Wow. Yeah. Right? Doctors will very happily fuck with your body to make it smaller. But if you are a trans person who wants, like, a gender-confirming surgery, Mm -hmm. they will refuse to do that surgery until you've lost weight. It's very bad. So there, I think that there is something here about non-permanence, right? That it's fun because she can always change back. To whatever we perceive back to be. So there is, I do think, implied in the text through a whole variety of things, right? Through... Her positioning against other forms of shapeshifters through the social responses to her playful transformations, through her reception by other like morally trustworthy characters. I think there is a constant implication that her transformations are only ever surface deep, only ever temporary, and that she could always go back to something that is the quote-unquote real Tonks. Right. And yet, latent in these imaginings of transformation are these really queer possibilities. Yeah, because while that may be the implication, there is no textual evidence that there is a quote-unquote stable or quote-unquote real Tonks. Because there's no textual evidence that there's a stable or real anyone because texts are themselves performances whoa 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 that's sounding pretty phenomenological to me hannah and i think we discussed in the last (laughs) episode that performances and texts and media are different things (laughs) they're absolutely not but like a text can't be evidence that there's such a thing as a stable internal self right it can only be an attempt to claim that there is such a thing as a stable internal self. Because texts reflect, they don't... I mean, they produce discourse, but they don't produce reality. No, they don't. They do not. Like that moment in... Fuck, I don't know. Is it Endgame? I think it's the Marvel movie Endgame when when someone uses a word and Drax says that's a made-up word and then Thor says all words are made up and then Drax goes, oh. Yeah, they are all made up. Yeah, they're all made up. There are no natural words. There are no natural words and there are no natural bodies. That's the wild thing. And so Tonks, somehow simultaneously, evidence of some of the deeply conservative notions of appearance and identity that 
structure these texts as a series. And at the same time, one of those beautiful slippage points that we keep finding that allow us to just squirrel our gay little fingers in. Love to squirrel my gay little fingers. (laughs) Well, that was a graphic metaphor to end with. Thank you, witches, for joining us for this very exciting recorded in-person episode of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to NotSorryWorks.com or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at OhWitchPlease. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry for having us and to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach! If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts? At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me call your name just like a little prayer. I've really lost a lot of ideas and I'm now just turning to lyrics, song lyrics. (laughs) So thanks this week to regular Flavel. My favorite kind of Flavel. The regular kind. And thank you to all of our wonderful Patreon supporters for making this show possible. We have an exciting Patreon announcement. We are currently running a holiday Patreon drive to reach $5,000 US dollars a month by January 1st, 2022. Holy moly. It's very exciting. If we reach that goal, your support will collectively unlock a live Zoom event of which please tell me where all patrons at every level will be invited to tune in and ask questions in real time. This sounds so fun. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's going to be deeply chaotic. (laughs) We have also launched a new tier, the Faculty Club. Oh, I love this. This one's really exciting. It comes with some truly special perks. (laughs) You can find out more about the Holiday Patreon Drive, about the new tier, and about some special bonuses we are offering to incentivize your participation at patreon.com slash oh please. Oh, goody. We'll be back next episode to continue our discussion of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. But until then, later, later witches! witches.